Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and the Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast is Green Socialist Notes, which is about continuing to educate and advocate for the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. And I don't have a whole lot to say to open this up today, except to note that we are in a chronic political crisis with a Republican Party that's no longer just conservative, but extremist, far-right, authoritarian, and outright crazy. I mean, they're pushing this debt ceiling uh, situation to the brink. And if we go over the brink, the U.S. will default on its obligations. And, you know, U.S., uh, you know, treasuries were considered the safest investment in the world. If we, do, if we can't pay on them, then uh, it just turns the world economy upside down and, uh, you know, will be uh, dire for not just us, but people all over the world. And, you know, the Republicans, they're not only anti-democratic when they use authoritarian means to uh, gain power, um, they're wreckers. They really don't care about this country. And... Meanwhile, Joe Biden keeps talking about bipartisanship with the party that tried to overthrow his election. I mean, I just can't get over that. The the thing is, the Democrats don't know how to fight the fascists. Instead of figuring out how to politically defeat them decisively, they want to accommodate them and work with them and compromise with them. And all that does is empower the far right. So... Meanwhile, you know, when it comes to domestic policy, Biden is moving to the right. He just appointed Neera Tandon, who was rejected when he first came into office as his domestic uh, policy advisor. She goes back to she's close to Hillary Clinton and that whole neoliberal corporate approach to uh, domestic policy, which is not good for working people in this country, for sure. And of course, you know, Clinton was very aggressive as an American imperialist, Neera Tandon won't have uh, formal, uh, you know, a say on that, but she'll be in the inner circle of the White House. Uh, meanwhile, <clears throat> the Fed raised interest rates again, nominally, at least in, in theory, to stop inflation, when if you look at inflation, uh, it's not because wages are too high and you need to raise interest rates, slow the economy, put people out of work, and therefore, you know, their wage demands will go down. Wages have been growing, but not at the rate of inflation. So what we really have with inflation is corporations taking advantage of their monopoly or oligopoly position in a lot of markets. Early on in the inflation, it was goods coming out of the COVID uh, slowdown. And so there was, you know, supply chain uh, bottlenecks. And now goods production is caught up, but we now see the inflation in the service sector. Um, And that is not because there's a shortage of services. It's because these corporations that increasingly control those markets are just able to raise prices because they can and do it at a higher rate than wages increase. So uh, we have no... uh, 
serious domestic policy. We have no pushback on the rise of interest rates from the Biden administration. Few of the progressive Democrats have, have questioned it, but uh, so we're in a political crisis. And what's the alternative? Given our single member district winner take all plurality elections, it excludes alternatives because when it gets down to, particularly in the federal and state level races, uh, a lot of people that like what we're talking about in the Green Party say, I got to vote for the Democrats, hold my nose, because I'm really afraid of the Republicans. And that's what happens when you have single member district winner take all plurality elections, which means, you know, and I've been coming back to this since I finished that 2020 campaign. We got to focus on pro-democracy electoral reforms. First of all, fair ballot access. I mean, if we're not on the ballot, we're not an alternative. And uh, there are moves in a lot of states, particularly New York, it already happened, where it basically knocked off uh, all the independent parties. So it's nearly impossible to petition back onto the ballot in this state. So I'm involved with you know Greens and others to try to get a fairer or less unfair ballot access law passed. And then we got to move on to ranked choice voting and proportional representation in our legislative bodies. So that the spoiler problem, where the Greens are seen as splitting the, the left vote from the center vote so the Republicans might get elected, that's eliminated with ranked choice voting and particularly proportional representation. So I see that as, as a leading issue that we should all be working on. We've made great progress. The Greens have been central to this going back to the early years of the 21st century, this century, uh, in getting ranked choice voting in places like San Francisco and uh, Berkeley and Oakland and San Leandro and uh, in other cities as it's spread across the country. We went into 2020 with just about 20 jurisdictions, maybe 24, that were using ranked choice voting and in some cases proportional ranked choice voting. And now uh, we have over 100 jurisdictions. If you count all those that uh, would be covered uh, as a result of that Nevada initiative that passed, it has to pass again to change the uh, constitution in Nevada. But uh, we've made a lot of progress here. And so we've got momentum. And I think that's got to be something we work on in our municipal governments, our county governments, our state governments. And on the basis of that, we take it to the federal level. There is a bill, the Fair Representation Act, that would have the House of Representatives represented proportionally by proportional ranked choice voting. It would set up three to five member districts. You rank your choices, the winning threshold, like in a three member district is 25%. In a five member district, it's more like 20%. And that would open the door to the Greens, probably the Libertarians, uh, but we'd have a multi-party system and debates would not just happen during elections to the extent we can get into elections and get on a ballot, but in the legislative bodies. And that would be, you know, half the battle for us because once we're in the debate, we're going to win the debate on a lot of these issues because what we stand for is popular. That's why the Democrats are so afraid of us. Uh, universal health care, publicly financed, or what we call Medicare for all. The real Green New Deal. Uh, student debt relief, tuition-free public college. A lot of these things Bernie Sanders had a lot of traction with when he ran in the Democratic primaries in 20, 
16 and 2020. Uh, we were talking about that decades before. Um, so what we've been talking about is popular, but the electoral system excludes us. So I think that's got to be a top priority for us. So I'll just leave it at that and just note that we're in a political crisis. And I think one of the things we got to do is change the electoral system. So uh, looking for your looking forward to your questions and comments and let's go. Amy L. Sachs, Democratic politicians accommodate the far right because they too want right wing policies, but also pretend that their own hands are clean. The GOP is a proxy for the things like Biden actually wanted. Um, I think that's true in terms of, you know, these neoliberal pro-corporate economic policies. Um, also, generally, our aggressive imperialistic foreign policy. I think on social policy, though, it's different. I think, you know, Democratic politicians reflecting uh, their Democratic base, they are progressive on things like abortion rights, uh, LGBTQ equality. Um, and so on those, and, you know, at least formal racial equality. The Democrats have never had a substantive uh, economic program that would, you know, create more economic, less economic inequality between black and other people of color and white people. Um, so there is a difference there. Um, and I think they accommodate the far right because they're from the same basically social class of upper middle class or upper class people that uh, really don't rub shoulders and know those of us in the working class. And I think a lot of Democrats are really uh, kind of oblivious to the damage they cause when it comes to those corporate neoliberal economic policies and, you know, when they send mostly working class kids off to wars. So I, I agree generally, although I think on, you know, the social and cultural issues, there is a substantial difference. And that's what the Democrats use to get a lot of people who really don't like the Democrats and other policies to vote for them when it's a choice between them and a far right Republican. Scout Trooper 164, Howie, what are your views regarding JFK Jr.? Personally, while I don't agree with him on everything, he knows what he's talking about, has research to back it up, and is environmentally friendly. Now, I, I don't agree with that at all. He had a tweet out this week about Ukraine that was uh, ignorant and wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to vaccines, he's wrong. And uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And even going back before he got into this vaccine stuff over the last 15, 20 years, he was a pro-market environmentalist with Environmental Defense Fund. And their approach to the environment was uh, regulations that set limits on the amount of the pollution that could be released, and also market incentives, you know, market-oriented environmental policy. And it's really fundamentally wrong. If something is dangerous, you shouldn't just set a limit and allow it to be released. And they even go for, you know, uh, like with carbon, you know, allowing, you know, a carbon market. So uh, a company can continue to release 
carbon if they, you know, buy carbon credits from another company that reduce their carbon. Uh, they're still polluting. And that's, you know, been used in Europe and uh, parts like the, we have a REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in the Northeast, and it's failed miserably. Um, and then when it comes to pollutants, you know, where we've been successful in environmental policy is when we ban pollutants like lead and gasoline or DDT, at least domestically. Um, so uh, I think, you know, JFK is junior is, um, I, I, I disagree that he, he knows what he's talking about. I don't think he does. You know, he reduced, tried to reduce the war in Syria to a war over gas pipelines, totally ignoring that there was a popular uprising against uh, authoritarianism and poverty back in 2011 as part of the Arab Spring and, uh, you know, tried to reduce it to, you know, different states' interests in gas pipelines. So he, he's just not in touch with, you know, what popular movements are doing. And the same thing in Ukraine. I'm trying to remember exactly what he said in his tweet, but it was outrageous. Um, and it was wrong. It's escaping my mind right now, but um, I don't think he's going to go far in a Democratic primary. He'll, he'll get some votes, but I'd, I've heard that he's, he's counting on winning New Hampshire, which is, I guess, second after South Carolina. Um, in New Hampshire, he might do well because independents can, you know, move over to vote in the Democratic primary. Uh, whether they'll do that or, or go to the Republican primary, which, you know, will also be between Trump and maybe the alternative to him. Uh, it's hard to predict at this point. <clears throat> Grace Marie Woodard, third way Democrats are pushing right. That's their charter. And maggots <laughs> are pulling right as well. Um, Democrats want more mansions. They hope that moderate Republicans will defect to the Democratic Party. At the same time, the Democratic Party stops on the true left. I think that's basically accurate. Um, we know that because people like um, Hakeem Jeffries, who's now the speaker or the leader of the House caucus in the, in, in the House, um, he has a pack that he has used to finance challengers to uh, progressive Democrats like Rashid Tlaib, Rashida Tlaib and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, so there's, you know, definitely a, an establishment in the Democratic Party that wants to push out uh, the lefties and replace them with more uh, moderate Democrats. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, Biden's strategy, he's moving to the right on policing, on immigration, on his, you know, domestic policy appointment. Uh, his economic advisor or his chief of staff is now a centrist, not a more liberal uh, person like he had in there before, whose name is also escaping me. But um, so, yeah, they think, uh, you know, with more mansion types, uh, they will appeal to the moderate Republicans that can't stand Trump and they'll win that way. What they're forgetting is that a lot of the base of the Democratic Party are working class and people of color who want action. They want action on voting rights. 
on economic justice uh, and they're not seeing it. And so they may just stay home and the Republicans may win because of that. So I think, uh, and the third way Democrats are definitely, you know, a corporate sponsored lobby, what do they call it? The third way Institute or they have an organization and they're definitely, you know, center right corporate Democrats and they're pushing the Democrats to the right and attacking their progressive wing. Via email, thoughts on Biden sending troops to the border. Yeah, it's another move to the right, trying to message to Republicans that he's their guy. And, you know, to militarize the problem at the border is not to deal with it. Uh, Biden is now, his administration is setting up regulations that would allow them to treat immigrants like they did under Title 42, I think it was called, the one that said, we can just summarily expel immigrants because of the COVID crisis. And that is in the courts that may get thrown out. So Biden's got a backup plan. Uh, he's exported or deported 35,000 Haitians without any due process back to a dire situation in Haiti. Uh, and that's just one of uh, many examples. You know, it's now they, they have to apply for asylum or immigration uh, while they're staying in Mexico until they get an appointment. There's a phone app they got to use. Not everybody's got a phone or can keep it charged. Um, it's just a really cruel way of dealing with it. And, you know, the, the root causes of this are uh, poverty, including uh, poverty caused by climate change in Central America, and uh, also the legacy of U.S. intervention backing right-wing governments, including narco states like in Guatemala that, uh, you know, have led to the proliferation of drug gangs and who now are in the, uh, you know, business of also of uh, transporting migrants to the border. Um, so instead of having a policy of helping those countries develop, we've had a policy of keeping them safe for exploitation by U.S.-based corporations. That's, those are the kinds of issues we got to address to deal with this border crisis. And, uh, you know, in the Eco-Socialist Green New Deal, when we did the budget, we found that, you know, we need more people to work on the transition in the rapid time scale we're talking about, 10 years, then we have people able to do the work. So people that want to come here and work, particularly in construction and industrial uh, manufacturing, which is where most of those jobs will be, um, they're sitting there on the border ready to come in and go to work. And so that would benefit us, but also benefit those countries that came from, because a lot of the people that work here who are immigrants send back remittances to their families back in those countries, which is an important source of income in those countries, given how undeveloped and exploited they've become. So, uh, you know, sending troops to the border is not a solution. It's just a political message where Biden's trying to appeal to uh, some Republicans and independents who uh, see the border as a big crisis, uh, mostly because Fox News amps it up every day. Um, so 
yeah, I think it's a, sending troops to the border is not the solution. It's a bad idea. Scout Trooper 164 with Fox News plummeting thanks to Tucker's departure. What do you think will happen? Cable news drops more in ratings. People go to newscast or other. Um, did you mean Newsmax? I actually read an article on Newsmax today uh, where a right winger is saying, you know, the Greens, the progressives don't vote for the Greens in these elections like the presidential election. They vote for Biden, whereas the libertarians vote for the libertarian, which hurts the Republicans. So he made the case for ranked choice voting on that far right uh, outlet, which I found interesting. Um, and yeah, cable news uh, got a bump because of Trump, and he was a you know he was like a daytime daytime soap opera or a reality show that everybody wanted to keep up on. Um, and he's faded a little bit. Um, and then there was COVID, where you know where a lot of people were staying home and you know spend more time watching TV, I guess. Um, but cable news is kind of boring. I mean, you can flip between. CNN and MSNBC and NPR and pretty much get the same stories over and over and over again. Fox News is, kind of has their own different loop pushing their agenda, but it's pretty boring. So it's not surprising. Now, Tucker Carlson, you know, was outspoken, racist, great replacement theory, um, and a platform for, I call them the post-left. These people that used to be on the left but are now Apologists for authoritarian governments. You know, I'm thinking of the gray zone people, Max Blumenthal, Jimmy Dore, um, Glenn Greenwald, Aaron Mate. Um, and, you know, they go on, on you know, uh, Tucker Carlson's show or did and uh, give him kind of a legitimacy on the left. I mean, I'm on some list where, you know, people that consider themselves on the left or on did consider themselves on the left are defending uh, Tucker Carlson because he brought on, you know, he was opposed to the U.S. supporting Ukraine uh, in the face of the Russian invasion. Um, so what do I think will happen? Uh, I think cable news will continue to be uh, low. I think a lot of people will tune out because they're, they feel alienated. They feel powerless. And so to even follow the news is, is painful because if you can't do anything about it, you know, why even, you know, bring it to your consciousness? I think this is where a lot of people are at. I think they're mistaken. There's a lot we can do. I mean, social movements make change and people need to know what's going on to make those changes. So, um, but I think that may ha be what happens. More and more people tune out. And, you know, if heaven forbid that we uh, get a, a default, that might bring people back on the cable news to see what's going on. But um, it will also, I think, just contribute to the sense of alienation that so many people have because they feel they, they can't make any difference. So they, they just tune out and just try to take care of their their own private lives. And, you know, that's a disaster. That's what the people that run this country want. They don't want us informed, educated, and mobilized. They want us passive. 
so they can do what they want. And uh, so I don't know what will happen. I think cable news will continue to drop and so will all news sources. And unfortunately, a lot of people will then start turning to uh, other online forums, you know, Facebook and Twitter and so forth, where uh, you don't get reporting, you get rumors mostly. And, you know, then people are going to respond or believe their their sources uh, and not follow up and check on, you know, when people make claims, you know, you know, look at their sources. Um, I'll give you an example because this is coming up a lot with respect to Ukraine. And there's this narrative that Zelensky had a peace platform, but he was intimidated out of it by the far right in Ukraine. And Aaron Mate wrote an article on that, and he included this clip of Zelensky arguing with members of what was the Azov Battalion, then was the Azov Regiment, part of the uh, Ukrainian Armed Forces and under their discipline. And this was in, uh, I think it was 2019, and as part of the Minsk process, both sides were supposed to bring pull their weapons back a kilometer from the contact line. And this Azov guy, who was actually the leader of the National Corps Party, which is a far-right party, uh, started by former members of Azov. And, you know, Zelensky said, you got to pull the arms back. And this guy said, but we have protests and these demonstrations and it's all against that. And the people of Ukraine are against that. And Zelensky, you know, walked right up to him, looked him in the face and said, I'm the president. You know, you got to follow my orders. Now, Aaron Mate's narrative is they intimidated Zelensky. Zelensky wasn't intimidated. He was pissed off and he told that guy what he thought. And a few days later, those arms were removed uh, by the Ukrainian armed forces and that Azov regiment group, uh, you know, had to follow orders. So that that actually shows that Zelensky was not intimidated by the far right. Um, but so what I'm saying is if you didn't uh, actually look at the link and think about what you saw, uh, you just have. Aaron Mate giving you a, a, a link that's supposed to prove a point, and I think it actually proves the opposite point. So I guess what I'm saying is we got to be really critical consumers of what we read and, you know, check up on the, on the embedded links or the footnotes and see if they actually support what the author says they support. Um, so anyway, uh, it's – I. I that's the best I can do. I, I, I can't predict what will happen. I just have a feeling that our media environment keeps getting worse and people are alienated and therefore retreating to private life, which is bad. Violated content boutique, the murder in the New York subway of that Michael Jackson street dancer is a very heavy blow to my soul. Like Philip Castile, Trayvon, and Torquita, um, any thoughts to share on these never-ending murders? Yeah, um, what's really a shame is the guy that put the chokehold on that killed him was questioned and released. And uh, even if it was unintentional death, uh, you know, there, it is a, you know, a crime to uh, kill somebody. Um, it wasn't in self-defense. It was actually, um, you know, they, they and some other passengers thought, 
this guy um, uh, was being, you know, irritating to the passengers on that subway. Um, but that doesn't mean he deserved death, God. So, um, yeah, but it shows the uh, mentality that's encouraged, certainly by Fox News, but also by Biden, who responds to this stuff with more money for uh, police departments around the country. Um, and we know that more police don't reduce crime. You need a certain level of policing to catch criminals after the fact, um, but um, they don't prevent crime. What prevents crime in this case, this guy uh, seemed to be having a mental health crisis. He was homeless, stressed out. He needed a home and maybe mental health counseling. Instead, he got some vigilantes that killed him. And, uh, you know, we see this, you know, with uh, the mass shootings that are so constant, like two a day in this country. And it seems, you know, we got copycats now in Serbia. Um, it's a real problem. And it's it's a problem in a capitalist world where all the major countries of the world are capitalist and working class people are struggling. They don't have access to basic things like health care and mental health care and housing. Uh, increasingly with growing inequality, growing inequality, it's not just absolute poverty, it's relative poverty. That creates divisions within society, hostility, envy, uh, and then you get upscale people fearing lower income people uh, as a threat to their high standard of living. And the low income people are, you know, struggling to survive. Um, so all that speaks to the need for, you know, fundamental system change so that like the economic bill of rights we talk about, everybody should have the right who wants to work to a living wage job. And if they can't work, to an income above poverty, and to an affordable home, and to healthcare, and to lifelong public education, and to a secure retirement. These are things that just set a floor of decency in societies. And when we don't, we end up with all the violence we're getting. And uh, you know, this incident in the New York subway is just one of many manifestations. I mean, it happens every day here in my city of Syracuse. You know, people are shooting each other over nothing. Um, they have an argument to go back and get their guns and have shootouts on the street. And um, so anyway, we, we've got we to change the system. So it's about taking care of uh, the people, not protecting the profits and privileges of the, of the upscale people. I mean, basically the upper middle class, the top 10% and the the very rich, the capitalists, the top 1% or 2%. Scout Trooper 164, what should we expect now that the US has prepped Ukraine with nuclear attack sensors? Right now, my fears are low, but even the lowest of predictions can still happen. So I think you're talking about radiation sensors and it's not just possible tactical nukes from Russia. It's uh, the meltdown of nuclear reactors of which Ukraine has, I believe 21, 
including, I think it's seven at the Zaporizhia plant, which is occupied by Russian forces. Um, so, you know, that, I think what's more likely is that, uh, and, and Russia, you know, was setting it up. So this might've happened in the winter when they were uh, sending missiles and drones at electrical infrastructure and nuclear power plants need outside outside electrical, electrical sources uh, to maintain their systems. And uh, so if the nuclear reactor is down or, or down for repairs, they still have the power to, to cool the reactors. And so that was probably the biggest danger. Um, I think Putin would be crazy, and I don't think he's crazy, uh, to use tactical nuclear weapons because the response, although I don't think it would be nuclear from the U.S. and NATO, would be devastating. I think they'd use conventional forces and really hit the Russian forces in Ukraine really hard. And uh, Putin doesn't want that. He can barely stand up to the Ukrainian military or, you know, slow its advances. You know, the, the Ukrainians have taken back more than half the land that Russia had at its peak uh, a year ago, March, March 21st. Since then, they've been, they've been losing ground. And uh, so I don't think, you know, using tactical nukes is uh, something Putin's going to do. It would just be suicidal. Um, but I'm more afraid of, you know, problems with these reactors at Saparizia, as well as the other reactors, if, uh, you know, they, they lose their source of electrical power and, you know, somehow can't maintain cooling of the reactors. They all have backup diesel, but it's uh, only limited in, in how long it can, uh, you know, provide electricity to these plants. Um, and if electricity is out, you know, that means pumping diesel out of you know, uh, where it's stored, it becomes a problem. It just, it just sets up a very dangerous situation. So, um, so the sensors, you know, are for radiation and, uh, you know, that is, you know, probably a good public health measure. So you become aware if there's radiation that uh, could threaten health, you know where it is and where it may be going. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of the Russian claim of the drone strike? Um, my judgment is out. Ukraine is capable. Uh, whether they did it, you know, is a, basically a propaganda ploy because, you know, they, they weren't likely to damage or get anybody like Putin. Um, Russia could have done it to, uh, you know, set up a propaganda false flag claim. It could have been... Uh, Russian uh, opponents of Putin who wanted to make a symbolic strike. They have been sabotaging uh, railroads and burning draft offices. Um, so there is an armed resistance, mostly coming from anarchists in Russia. They could have done it. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, we need more concrete evidence. And uh, I do find it suspicious that the event happened about three o'clock in the morning, but all the videos and news broadcasts about it on Russian media didn't come out for 12 hours, like it was, you know, coordinated. But uh, like I said, I'm reserving judgment. I don't know.
Beattie Dimmitt. Is there a significant voice for a non-anthropocentric opposition to war in general, as well as that of on Ukraine in particular? So a non-anthropocentric opposition would be, I'm not sure what, what you mean by that. Um, yeah, human opposition as opposed to a non-human opposition to war. Um, I guess you could say, is there an environmental uh, voice? You know, our environmentalists speaking out against the war? And the answer to that is definitely yes. Um, there are people like Svetlana Romanko, who I hope to have on this podcast soon, who is was the uh, 350.org representative in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, she now runs a group called Razum. Uh, Razum we stand, Razum means together. Uh, and they are emphasizing that this war is delaying uh, action on climate change, uh, is prolonging the use of fossil fuels, and that uh, Russia needs to withdraw from Ukraine, stop the war, so the world can get about the business of dealing with climate change. Um, there's also uh, a coalition that Code Pink has pulled together. Uh, they call it uh, War is Not Green. They have a somewhat different position of calling for negotiations. That coalition is, is sketchy. They said 350.org was a part of it, and in fact, they were not, and made that clear. Uh, they said, you know, they oppose the Russian invasion, and they, uh, you know, don't want to blame Ukraine for a war they didn't start. Um, so there are, you know, environmentalist voices, uh, you know, really on both sides of the divide about, you know, how much we should support Ukraine. Um, so how significant it is, is another question. Um, so BD adds, there are horrific results of warfare that are entirely separate from human death tolls. Yeah, absolutely. And outside the climate issue, absolutely. Depleted uranium, which the Russians are already using. The UK is uh, sending depleted uranium ammunition. Uh, the US is not saying whether or not they are. Uh, do you want that depleted uranium because it's, it's heavy and it burns through the outside armor uh, when it hits tanks and things like that uh, before the detonation? But what then you get is a lot of radioactive dust uh, from this depleted uranium. Uh, most of that is uh, uh, particles, the, the, the radia radiation particles are uh, uh, beta radiation, which can't pierce your skin. But the problem is you can ingest it uh, by breathing it, drinking it, or it being in the food you eat. And then when it's in your organs, it can uh, cause mutations and cancer. And we've got good evidence for that in uh, Yugoslavia and Iraq, where the U.S. used a lot of depleted uranium uh, weapons and, you know, has led to a lot of uh, birth defects. The other problem is, is not just the radiation. It's the toxic toxicity of that depleted uranium. It's a heavy metal like lead and other heavy metals that when they get in your system cause problems. Uh, so in Iraq, 
in the areas where these weapons were heavily used, like Basra and Ramadi, uh, or Ramah, Ramadi or Ramallah, I'm getting them mixed up. But anyway, uh, cities in, in Ukraine have a high level of birth defects, miscarriages, as well as cancer. Um, and then, you know, even if it's not depleted uranium, all these, um, you know, weapons, you know, they, they they use heavy metals and they when they explode, they, they become part of the dust and get ingested. Um, you have landmines all over the place, which uh, wildlife step on and get blown up just like people do when they step on them. Um, so there's a lot of problems with, uh, with war from an environmental point of view. And go ahead, what's the next thing? Is it likely there is some radioactivity hazard from the Russian troops that came to Ukraine via Chernobyl? Well, there were reports that those Russians, and this just shows how little regard the Russian command has for their own troops. They had them digging trenches in Chernobyl which caused the increase in the radioactivity that was the sensors around there picked up because radioactive dust uh, was now in the air. And when they retreated, when Russia retreated from Kiev and that whole northern offensive at the beginning of the war, uh, there are reports that those Russian troops had radiation sickness. Um, but it's, it's not been well confirmed. But it would be surprising if they didn't if they were sitting in all that radioactive dust and, uh, you know, didn't have consequences. But uh, those soldiers, they went back to Russia. Um, and, you know, hopefully for their sake, you know, they, they got the radioactivity mostly out of their system, but we just don't know. Via email, comments on the Proud Boys leader being found guilty of seditious conspiracy. Um, well, you know, I'm saying about time. I guess the legal process, you know, takes time. It's been now what? That was 2000, 2000, almost two and, two and a half years since the January 6th insurrection. And there's been plenty of uh, circumstantial evidence that we've seen about you know, they're organizing and we got it on video, what they were doing there. So um, I'm glad to see them convicted. I just hope now they're going higher up the food chain. They've they've gone sort of with rank and file people who were obviously doing wrong things. And now they've got uh, people convicted on seditious conspiracy, which is a higher level. But there's still people like that Steve Bannon and Roger Stone and... Uh, Mark Meadows and Trump himself, who were involved in setting up what happened on January 6th and yet have yet to be charged. Um, that is in the Justice Department's hands. Jack Smith, the special prosecutor appointed by uh, the Attorney General uh, Garland, Mer Marilyn, Merrick Garland. Um, so we'll see what they come forward with, but I hope they, they do bring indictments because you know, just from what we've seen reported, it's pretty clear these people, you know, were planning some kind of disruption of the counting of the electoral votes in the in the chamber of the Senate on January 6th. 
Emil Sachs, Biden's policy on COVID risk enough death and disabling to literally collapse, implode our entire structure and workforce. He's a slow motion wrecker in nice white gloves. Certainly Biden's deliberate adoption of Trump's letter rip COVID policy is an obvious shock tactic, even if his fan club refuses to see that. Yeah, I think, uh, and now the World Health Organization has declared uh, we're out of the health emergency. Um, it is true that um, we haven't had the spike in COVID uh, infections and deaths uh, that might have happened over the winter. Uh, on the other hand, it still is circulating. People are still dying. Uh, it's down from over 2,000 a week to about 1,000 a week last week. Um, so it is going down. But uh, lifting the emergency has put a lot of people in a, a dire situation. Uh, the estimates vary because it depends on what the states do with it. But a lot of people are going to lose uh, Medicaid. And they're going to be uninsured. So any kind of health problem they have, let alone COVID, becomes something they definitely cannot afford. Um, and that's just one of many supports that were put in for people uh, during the emergency that are now being lifted. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I think... We're, we're at a point where people don't even want to wear masks in places where they should, you know, like on an airplane or in a, you know, crowded situation. Um, and while, you know, people that have the vaccinations or natural immunity from having a case uh, and are generally healthy may be okay, or at least not severely harmed. There are people that are immunocompromised or older who, uh, for whom COVID is still a serious illness. And we're not uh, looking out for those folks. So um, I think, you know, our public health policy with respect to COVID uh, needs to be a little more on guard than it's becoming. Now it's becoming like it's over and let's go back to normal when, in fact, COVID is still circulating. And it is possible that a new variant that is more lethal and, uh, you know, will evolve, uh, particularly given that you know, much of the world and much of the United States is still not uh, vaccinated or have their vaccinations up to date. Um, now, vaccination doesn't completely prevent infection, but it does reduce the severeness of illness. And when uh, more people are vaccinated, the evidence is that the spread is slower. So, you know, there's good reason to still have, you know, a proactive policy with respect to COVID. And we seem to right now be just saying it's all over and whatever happens, happens. And what happens could be really bad. So I'm concerned. Via email, I answered that question about the Proud Boys leader uh, being guilty. Here's another one via email. What do you think should happen regarding SCOTUS ethics issues. Well, there should obviously be a, you know, a code of ethics for the Supreme Court justices. And, you know, what we're finding out about Clarence Thomas more and more is that he has corrupt connections 
uh, and he's ruling on cases where he should recuse himself, recuse himself. So, um, you know, there should be a, a, a code of ethics. And, you know, I guess that would be on the Congress to uh, write a law to put that in place. But the problem right now is the uh, Republicans have a veto. They got a slight, small majority in the House. And if something came out of the House, they got a basically a veto in the Senate because the filibuster rule is still in there. You need 60 votes to pass something like that, you know, which, you know, takes me back to Biden. You know, when they had the chance, when the Senate, well, actually, they still have a chance. In the Senate, it only takes 51 votes to change the rules and get rid of the filibuster. Um, and they're not even talking about that now. Um, and even when it would have really made a difference when there was voting rights and election protection and abortion rights bills that the House passed and the Equality Act and other you know, good reforms, the PRO Act to support labor organizing, uh, they couldn't get it through the Senate because of that filibuster. And instead of taking that on, uh, you know, Biden tried to work on bipartisan deals like the Inflation Reduction Act, he likes to point to, which, as I've said many times, is the Build Back Badly Act. It was Manchin's bill. It uh, provides a lot of supports for continued fossil fuel extraction and use. Uh, and it's it's never going to get us to the, the goal that Biden really pulled out of his rear end of 52% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030. There's no way the policies in place now at the federal level are going to do that. Um, and people, you know, that's something that we need to publicize and, and document because right now there's a lot of people under the illusion that, oh, we just passed the biggest climate bill in history. Yeah, it was really the only bill we ever passed and it wasn't a good climate bill. Um, so I'm getting away from the SCOTUS ethics issue, but the point is, you know, Congress could pass uh, a requirement that, you know, th that there be a code of ethics for Supreme Court justices. And right now the problem is the House, the Republicans got the majority, they probably wouldn't go for that. And even if they did, the Republicans in the Senate have a veto because of the filibuster, which comes back to, you know, reforms and in, in pro-democracy reforms. Uh, in the electoral process, but also in the way the uh, House and Senate function. I mean, just to mention something there, there's too much power in the hands of the leaders, um, you know, and so rank and file members uh, have a hard time uh, initiating legislation and uh, calling hearings and uh, setting the agenda for their caucus. It all has to go through the through the leaders and the speaker and the uh, Senate majority leader and so forth. And uh, so they end up having a lot more power than they should. It should be more like one person, one vote, not one or a few people having the veto over the rank and file of those uh, representative bodies. Scout Trooper 164, considering what you recently told me about JFK, JFK Jr., not JFK Jr., would you be willing to hold a debate with him? A podcast he was in had him admitted times he would have to do more research on topics. 
I'm not, I don't get the RFK Jr., not a RFK Jr. Um, but would I hold a debate with him? I guess so because it would elevate my stature, even though I hate to give him a platform because of the kinds of things he's been saying. Um, but, yeah, the thing is uh, he's running the Democratic primary. He's not going to debate me. Um, so that's uh, probably a theoretical consideration. Although, if it did come up, I'd debate him. Uh, I would. I would take him on. A, I would take him on on Ukraine, on his general environmental policies over his career, and the vaccines. And you know, we we would agree on some things. I think he's he's, you know, generally got a, a skeptical, critical attitude toward the military-industrial complex, which is good. Um, but I think. He's got a geopolitical and kind of conspiracy mindset and doesn't look at, you know, as I would, solidarity with the working classes and oppressed people around the world in their struggles against their own authoritarian governments or foreign invaders. Scout Trooper 164, I heard somewhere that the Taliban killed an ISIS leader involved with a Kabul terrorist attack. What do you think of this? Um, yeah, the Taliban may have, you know, captured the capital of Afghanistan, but there are uh, other Islamist factions that want to be in charge. So they're, they're, they're fighting each other. Um, and, you know, what can we do about it? I think, you know, we shouldn't get involved in their, you know, inter-Islamist fundamentalist squabble. You know, uh, I don't think we could stop that. Uh, but what we should be doing is providing humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. The funds that were uh, withheld when the Taliban took power that belonged to Afghanistan, they should be released. Uh, and we'd have to negotiate with the Taliban government how those would be distributed. So they actually got to the to the people that need food and other forms of assistance. Um, and then, you know, there are still NGOs trying to work in that country. Uh, you know, we should support them. Uh, but boy, if I was, if I was an Afghan, I'm not sure what I would do. You know, I don't know what the, uh, how much space there is for organizing. If you were organizing the kind of, you know, secular progressive socialist politics that I have, um, it would have to be underground. And that's a long-term process. You might be able to help it more from exile. I think Russian leftists face the same situation uh, today too. It's really difficult for those forces. But as far as the people of Afghanistan go, uh, humanitarian aid, where we negotiate with the Taliban so it gets to the people who need it, uh, should be our policy toward Afghanistan at this point. Eagle Wing Turtle, how can you still call yourself a Green when you are in favor of the military industrial complex's line on the Ukraine war? That's a violation of Green values. Well, I disagree. I think Green values are we support the oppressed and exploited, and Ukraine is under invasion by a uh, authoritarian, fascist, imperialist government in Russia. 
And so uh, you can't be neutral in a situation like that. The, the people of Ukraine, particularly the progressive forces in the trade unions, in the feminist movement, in the environmental movement, the Green Party there, the socialists and the anarchists, they're unanimous. Give us arms so we can defend ourselves. And when you're in a position to help somebody defend themselves against an aggressor and you don't, you're complicit in that aggression. So, you know, I think Greens, in our platform, we say under the value of nonviolence that we don't initiate violence as a political strategy, but we defend the right of people to defend themselves. People have the right of self-defense. And then when we get to talk about the use of the U.S. military, we say it should not be used for aggression, but it can be used for self-defense. So supporting Ukrainian self-defense, I see is completely in line with green values. Green parties around the world, except our green party in the United States are clear about that. They are condemning the Russian invasion and calling on Russian troops to withdraw. They are supporting Ukraine's right to self-determination and self-defense. And most of those parties are saying our government should provide arms to Ukraine. And even where they don't like in Australia, they say we should be providing humanitarian economic aid because our military aid, you know, would be a drop in the bucket compared to Ukraine's needs. Um, so that's where, you know, Green parties around the world are. This Green Party National Committee voted on a resolution saying end the sanctions on Russia, stop the arms to Ukraine, and vaguely called for negotiations. Um, what do you think happens if the arms to Ukraine are stopped and Ukraine is disarmed? You think Russia is going to stop its invasion? Are they going to withdraw from the territories they now occupy, where they're committing unspeakable war crimes? You know, they detain people that won't convert to Russification, uh, sometimes torturing them, executing them, raping them, castrating them. We got Russian forces now uh, executing prisoners with uh, sledgehammers. That's become a symbol of the Wagner forces who have neo-Nazi, open neo-Nazi forces within them, like the Rusich group. Uh, recently, they had videos of them beheading prisoners. Uh, and we're going to stand by and say we're not going to give arms to the Ukrainians to defend themselves from that? That's a green value. You stand by while people are being abused and you do nothing? I don't think there's anything like that. Now, the military-industrial complex is lying. Yeah, U.S. has imperialist interests all over the world. And the U.S. policy toward Ukraine is to push neoliberal economics. And actually, the government in Ukraine is pushing further than the EU certainly wants in terms of their labor reforms. Um, and that is something the progressive forces in Ukraine, the trade unions, the socialists, the anarchists, the environmentalists, the feminists, LGBTQ groups, they're fighting back. They're fighting a two-front war against the Russian invasion and also the neoliberal policies of the Ukrainian government. And that's who we should be in solidarity with, who we give our political support to. You know, the arms have to go to the Ukrainian government because they, you know, operate the Ukrainian armed forces that are doing the fighting. But our political support is not for the Zelensky government or the even worse uh, characters in their, their parliament who are some of them very extreme neoliberals. Our political support is to the progressive forces in Ukraine. And, you know, I've talked to people that have gone over there and, and done surveys and inter interviews recently. 
Uh, one of them is in Veterans for Peace for Ukraine, which is the pro-Ukraine uh, faction of Veterans for Peace. And the thing he emphasizes is that the young people in Ukraine, the under 40 people, <coughs> are so hopeful and so committed to small d democratic values that, uh, you know, he's very hopeful about where Ukraine uh, will end up after the war if they can get the Russians off their back. So uh, I'm proud to call myself a green. I'm opposed to imperialism, whether it's U.S. imperialism or Russian imperialism. And the only consistent anti-imperialist position is to oppose Russia's invasion of Ukraine, just like we oppose U.S. military support for Israel. You know, where are the progressives calling for demonstrations to end the $4 billion a year we give to Israel? as it commits its atrocities on the West Bank and continues expanding the settlements and stealing the land and property of Palestinians. You know, that is something we can do. That's where the U.S. is wrong, and we should oppose it. In the one case, we're actually giving arms to people that deserve it. That's where too much of the peace movement in the left is focused. And I think, uh, you know, they've really capitulated to... Uh, the idea that the only imperialism in the world is U.S. imperialism. And that's obviously not true. It's not just Russia. It's Turkey in Syria. It's Iran in Iraq and Syria. It's Turkey in Libya uh, and so forth. You know, it's India in, in the Kashmir um, and on and on. So we got to impose all imperialisms. And if we're not consistent on that, I don't think we're really consistent with green values, which from the very beginning, when they got started in Germany and Europe, they were opposed to the weapons, the intermediate range nuclear weapons of both NATO and the Warsaw Pact. And they did civil disobedience in East Germany and Czechoslovakia and Russia and protests there, as well as in West Germany. And uh, they didn't choose sides in the Cold War. They were opposed to both sides. And for a you know, disarmament agenda on both sides. And that's the kind of thing we should be pushing. I mean, right now, another thing we should be pushing the U.S. is, you know, uh, call out Russia, say, okay, you know, the U.S. was wrong to unilaterally pull out of the Anti-Ballistic Missiles Treaty, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, and Russia was wrong to pull out of the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty. But we need to go back to those treaties and beyond them. Uh, to negotiate toward the Treaty on a Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which over 100 countries around the world have signed on to. And the U.S. can take initiatives like declaring no first use as a nuclear policy, uh, scrapping the International Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, the ICBMs, which we don't need for deterrence. They just make us targets. That's something Daniel Ellsberg has emphasized. And use those uh, nuclear disarmament initiatives to try to get the ball rolling and say to the other nuclear powers, including Russia, you know, we're changing our policy and we want to negotiate with you uh, progressive and eventually complete nuclear disarmament. Uh, Russia, one of their rationales is they're afraid for their security. So they're afraid of NATO, so they attack Ukraine, which doesn't quite make sense, but uh, that's what they say. And we can say, well, okay, let's negotiate mutually acceptable security arrangements for the Euro-Atlantic region, including Russia, and including that nuclear disarmament. Those are the kind of initiatives 
uh, the U.S. government should be taking. And that's my position. It's not the military industrial complexes because they they like a, a cold war with Russia because, you know, then military budgets are up and they make money. So I could go on, but I'll stop there. Oh, wow. It's been an hour already. Um, so I see you all have a lot of questions. We'll be back next week uh, answering questions again. Um, coming up, I, I mentioned Svetlana Romanka. I uh, hope to have Rafael Bernabe, who is a third-party uh, progressive elected to the Puerto Rican Senate, uh, who's strong on Ukraine solidarity as well as left politics in Puerto Rico. Um, and then I will be uh, at the Global Greens Congress in early June. And I think there are two Saturdays when I'll be there. One of them I'll be flying. And so I think I'm going to ask Chris to do an interview with somebody. Uh, that's Saturday, June 2nd. But then the second Saturday, I'll probably have somebody from the conference on and people can ask questions about the Greens internationally. So, uh, and then, you know, good luck to us all. This this debt ceiling is coming closer. The, you know, Janet Yellen said we'll be out of money by June 1st. And here we are on the 6th of May. So we basically got about three weeks, a little more than three weeks, or they have to solve this problem. And if they don't, uh, we're gonna be in a whole new world. Um, I suspect they'll probably come up with a compromise. It's not going to be good for us because it's two corporate parties hammering out that compromise, but uh, it's probably going to mean more domestic austerity, and that's not good. Uh, the debt ceiling, people around the world, I was just on a conference with socialists from Europe on a call, and, you know, they look at us like we're crazy. What is a debt ceiling? What is the electoral college? Um, you can't get on the ballot. I mean, they just, it's inconceivable uh, that a modern so-called democratic country has this kind of craziness, but we do. And we need an alternative. And I know people generally progressives think, well, I got to vote Democrat because the Republicans are crazy. They are. But, you know, like I said at the top, uh, you don't defeat these far-right neo-fascist extremists in the Republican Party now by accommodating them cooperating with them. We got to defeat them politically, decisively, so they are demoralized and just crawl back under their rocks. There is a hardcore right. It goes back. We've always had it. You know, the racist right, the Dixiecrats, the Confederacy, but they are declining in numbers. I know back in 1968, you know, it was a close race between uh, Hubert Humphrey, who was an establishment liberal, and Richard Nixon, who was kind of a center-right, moderate Republican, certainly by today's standards. But there was George Wallace. And you put the Nixon and Wallace votes together, that was 60%. And Nixon was running on a Wallace theme. I mean, it was all kinds of racist dog whistles. Now that number is half of that. And a lot of those people are old. They're dying out. And the younger generation in this country is much more uh, progressive, tolerant, uh, maybe not radical in the sense of we need system change and a social system, but certainly 
more open. And so that far right, it's time to just defeat it politically. You know, Ralph Nader was saying during the last 2020 presidential election that, you know, Biden should be landsliding Trump if he just raised the popular, you know, economic class issues. And, you know, Biden didn't. And the Democrats never do because their funders don't want that. And so we end up with close elections when they should be defeated. Uh, that's all to say that we still need a political alternative on the left in this country. And I hope all of us do something this week to, to make that advance. And, you know, we'll see you next week and, and have some more discussion. So have a good week. Love.